Hey guys, welcome to this evening's class. Thanks for joining us. Uh, just dropping you a quick message to make sure I'm up and running on my end. Uh, let me begin with an announcement. I didn't do a very good job of making this clear. I don't even think I touched on it. But as you know, schedules have been a bit crazy and chaotic with all the regulation changes. Um, I should have mentioned that because you are going to have a Matthew exam, um, most likely not, this Sunday we should finish Matthew. This coming Sunday evening will be our last class for Bible school this year. And then the following Sunday evening will be the due date on that final Matthew exam. You have that long to turn in the final assignment for the year. So please forgive me. I know many of you have been working on that, and uh, some of you have even asked about it. I did not make that publicly clear. I know I answered a few people privately about it. Um, so for, forgive me that I, for not saying more about the assignments. If any of you have any questions about the assignments themselves, how to properly do them, uh, please feel free to let me know. I'm, I'm here to help you with that. Um, Lord willing, as time goes on, uh, I'm going to try to add more to our homiletics class. Homiletics is just sermon preparation. So I'm going to, because we can do some classes online like this, I'm going to try to, to do a little bit more to teach you about sermon preparation than just giving you assignments. You know that I've posted brief descriptions for the assignments on Google Drive, but I'd like to give you more. Uh, so yeah, so you have an extra, let's say, 10 days at least for uh, for the completion of these of the third assignment for the year. Um, if you're done with it, however, please feel free to send it in at your earliest convenience, and I will I will try to get started on, on grading those as quickly as possible. Uh, while we're talking about sermon prep, let me offer that if there are any of you that would like some, some extra time to ask questions about that or, or you want to have an extra lesson or two about that, I am happy to do this to set up a special time to have some of you preachers over to my office. We can sit down and just cover whatever questions you might have, whatever concerns you have. And obviously this year it didn't work out. We weren't able to have any men preach in class because of how we've had to have class. So I really feel like we've, um, I would say we've missed an opportunity, but it really was out of our control. But any of you guys that would be interested to have a little, let's call it a preacher's meeting or preacher's class here at my house, I've done that in the past and we've really had a good time with it. So any of you that are interested, let me know. Give me some feedback on that and I'm happy to, to make that happen. All right, we're in Matthew 27 this evening. Let me see what time it is. There's still a couple minutes before our normal class time. So let me see if I can speak slower in order to stall. Um, I'm going to switch over. I think I think this is about the normal amount of people that we have for class. So I'm going to go ahead and pray and get started. Uh, the nice thing about technology is if you come a little late, you can just go back and watch what you missed. So let's, if you have your Bibles, you can open to Matthew chapter 27. We'll begin in verse 45. But uh, let's also begin with prayer now. Father, thank you for this opportunity to continue our study in uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Please speak to our hearts tonight, Lord. Make, make the events that we're going to be reading about, make them real to us. 
And uh, Lord, let them change us. Father, even if we don't see the immediate change, let it over, over a long, the long term, Lord, for the rest of our lives, let, let what happens in this story greatly affect us. And I pray you to help me as I teach, bring things to my remembrance, prepare the hearts of these students, Lord, that the seed might fall on good ground and bring forth fruit in due time. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Matthew 27 and verse 45 says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. I made comment about that yesterday, about the timing of the cross. This is the last three hours of the cross. So Jesus, he was crucified and, and hung at 9 a.m., now, when it says back earlier, I think it was verse 35, they crucified him. We talked about him being his, having his arms stretched out and his hands and his feet nailed to the cross. But I didn't make mention that they would have then stood the cross up. And the cross falling into the ground, that must have been excruciatingly painful um, when that took place. But that, that is how crucifixions happened. So that happened at 9 a.m. So he's there. Uh, until noon, and then from noon until 3, at 3 o'clock, he, he dies, 3 p.m. So remember, when, we, when we're dealing with the sixth hour, right? you have to count time like a Jew. Jews start counting time from 6 p.m. to them as a new day. So they start their days with the evening. We know this from Genesis, right? The evening and the morning were the first day. So 6 p.m., that's a new day. 6 a.m., so if you have 6 a.m. and then you get to the sixth hour, that's 12 o'clock noon on our watch, right, on our clocks. And then the ninth hour, of course, is 3 p.m. So verse 46, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried uh, with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, the... The way that Matthew has written this, right? He's given us the Hebrew designation for the for the word God, Eli, Eli. It's short for Elohim. It's the first three letters of that. And according to church history, Matthew wrote his gospel in Hebrew. Now, there have never been any Hebrew manuscripts found. Uh, the only manuscripts we have for Matthew are written in Greek, as far as you know, original language type stuff. But there are several accounts in church history of people that saw Matthew's gospel in Hebrew. And because Matthew, it appears that he was writing this gospel for a Hebrew crowd. He was writing it for people that were still in Israel, people in Jerusalem that could go and verify all these stories and talk to the people that he mentions throughout the book. Uh, so Matthew gives us the, the Hebrew behind it. Eli, Eli, lava, sabachthani. Now bear in mind, he, he, he has to tell this part of the story. We have to have this in Hebrew. We have to at least have the original words here. And then he translates it for us, which means, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The reason we need the original wording is because of what follows. In verse 47 and 48, the people standing there below the cross, they thought that Jesus was calling for Elias. So if Matthew did not give us the Hebrew version of this, then, it, right, if we only have the story translated into English, my God, my God, it really wouldn't make sense. Why do they think he's calling for Elias? But when you know what he actually said hanging there, Eli, Eli, it, you can understand why the people 
at the foot of the cross or near near the cross would have mistakenly thought, it sounds like he's calling for Elijah, which he wasn't. But bear in mind, Jesus has been hanging there for six hours. He's thirsty. We know at one point on the cross, he said, I thirst, and nobody brought him a drink at that time. Uh, he's, he's been beaten. He's, his blood has been right running out of his body. He's in horrible shape. So there's no doubt in my mind that when he said this, it was not as if he pulled himself up and filled his chest full of air and then said it nice and loud and clear and crisp so that everybody could hear clearly what he was saying. He did not say this clearly. I'm hesitant a little bit to say that he mumbled it. I wouldn't go that far. Uh, He does cry, cry with a loud voice. But to say that he said it clearly so that it's understandable to everybody I I highly doubt that he did. Uh, Let me show you how Mark gives us the story. Uh, Mark, of course, is is targeting a different audience. He is aiming more towards a a Roman slash Latin speaking audience. And um, that will explain a little bit of why Mark presents some of the stories. Uh, It's not different information, but he offers a different angle sometimes because of that. But Mark 15, 34, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, laba sabachthani. Now, why report the story like this? What did Jesus say? Did he say Eli, Eli or Eloi, Eloi? Well, Eloi, Eloi, that is the Chaldean or Aramaic. That's a synonym. Those two things are the same thing. Uh, the Aramaic version of the word God is Eloi which is very similar, as you can see, to the Hebrew version. The Hebrew and Aramaic languages are very similar. Uh, you, you might even be tempted to say that the Aramaic is kind of a derivative of the Hebrew language. So what did Jesus actually say? I don't think anybody would know for sure, right? Laba sabachthani, lama sabachthani is the same in, in Aramaic and Hebrew. It's, it doesn't change. The spelling, the pronunciation, it's all the same. So was Jesus speaking Aramaic? Was he speaking Hebrew? Well, while he was up on the cross, it probably was hard to tell based on this one comment. So I think both stories are legitimate. We're not sure exactly how Jesus pronounced the name, but the thought is still the same. We know from all the Gospels that he's crying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? All right, so let me bring you back to uh, Matthew's Gospel now. All right, so he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, this is, he's quoting, actually, Psalm 22, verse 1, uh, which you guys are going to have to forgive me here. Uh, Your attendance code, watch this. You're going to see some magic here. I've got to, I forgot to do this beforehand, so I'm going to do it while you're watching. There it is. Okay, Psalm 22.1. That's your attendance code for this evening. Forgive me. Didn't have that ready. Uh, But David was the original, um, can I say, he's the first one to not only pen, but to say these words. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And in David's case, it had to do, if you want to think of it historically, David is being persecuted by Saul. He's been chased out into the wilderness. So in the context of David's life, this would have a slightly different meaning. But when Jesus quotes this, what, what, is, what is he saying? Well, how far do we go with this? 
There are a lot of different doctrines that actually come from this statement. Some people will say that this proves that it was at the ninth hour, right before Jesus died, this is when Jesus became sin for us. And when he became sin for us, God forsook him. Now, I, I will struggle to disprove that. Right? I understand fully why somebody would, would come to that conclusion. I don't think that you can use this verse by itself to prove this is the moment when Jesus became sin. Uh, there's another argument that would say when the, when the sky went dark, that's back in verse number 45, uh, when there was darkness over the land for those last three hours. Some people say that starting at the sixth hour, Jesus became sin, and that's why the light of the world went out. Right? So there's darkness over the land. So they, they tie that together. Guys, there is no verse that is going to definitively prove when Jesus actually became sin. We don't need to figure that out. It, it doesn't change the fact that at some point, he became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Uh, one thing, uh, another thing that's said about verse 46, notice that he says, my God, my God. He doesn't say, my Father, my Father. So some people have taught that it's at this point that Jesus has not only become sin, whether he's been sin for three hours or this is the point where it initially happens, they say God is no longer his Father. Jesus recognizes him as God, but not Father, because he didn't cry out, my Father, my Father. I think that's taking it a step too far, to be honest. Um, because just a few minutes later, Jesus will say, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. So God is still his Father. I, again, you can't just take this one phrase and, and run away from it and start teaching strange things like that. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Could it be that, that Jesus is almost giving a nod towards Psalm 22 to say, guys, go check that psalm and see what you can find in that psalm that pertains to what you're witnessing right now? I think, I think that's possible that Jesus was doing such a thing. I think there's that prophetical aspect. Check that psalm and look at all the prophecies I'm fulfilling because Psalm 22 is full of prof fulfilled prophecies that were taken care of at the cross. And we just don't have time to get into all of them, but there's, there's a number of them. And then I think there's a very practical side to it that Jesus, with the weight of the sins of the world upon him, with the weight of my sins upon him, he, for the, even if it was for the briefest of moments, God forsook him. His father pulled away to what extent, right? How much distance there was, how long it took for that, for the, for God's presence to come back. We don't know. It's not, it's not outlined for us here, but Jesus was so keenly aware of God's presence, of his father's presence in his life, that if for the slightest moment, the father steps away, if that relationship altered in any way, Jesus was immediately aware of it. When you balance this out with other things Jesus said about the relationship he had with the Father, in, in the book of John especially, we read a lot about it. He says, I, uh, the Father is always with me. 
What a great statement. The Father is always with me. He said, I know that the Father will never leave me alone. It's comments like that. So Jesus, that's how he's been walking with his Father. Now, by the way, just so you know, this is in John 6. The relationship that Jesus had with his Father, that's the same relationship he desires to have with us. The same thing we're supposed to have with the Father, actually. We learn how to walk with God by watching the way Jesus walked with God. God help us that we would be so spiritually sensitive that when the presence of God is not as real as it once was in our lives, that we would immediately cry out and say, God, what's going on? But here I, you can see where I could get to preaching this, uh, so let me, let me try to stick to teaching this tonight. But there's a lot in that statement. Verse 47, some of them that stood there when they heard that said, this man calleth for Elias. Well, he wasn't. We know that. Matthew, Matthew, Mark, these other writers, they have the benefit of already, uh, they, they had spoken with the resurrected Jesus. They had been around other apostles. So they, they had, from the benefit of hindsight, they knew what Jesus had actually said, right? The resurrected Christ, 40 days teaching the disciples before he went back to heaven. They could have asked him all these questions. What was it that you said there on the cross? So it just sounded like he was saying Eli, Elias, but obviously he wasn't. Verse 48, straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. Now, one of the other gospels, I think it's in John, yeah, John 19, it, Jesus does receive this. He, he doesn't turn, turn down this vinegar. You know, earlier in the story, last night we covered it, that Jesus would not accept the vinegar mixed with gall or the wine mixed with myrrh. It's saying the same thing. But this time he did. Now, the, I think the reason he did, he knows he's about to die. Jesus said in John 10, no man takes his life, he lays it down. Jesus was in full control at any moment. He could have just stayed on that cross for hours and hours and hours. But there was a point when he knew the job is done. I have accomplished that which I was sent to do. And now it's, it's time to die. I, I think this is a very, there's a very practical explanation for him receiving this little bit of vinegar just to wet his whistle, as they say. He wants to say something else. He struggled to say what he just said. The crowd didn't understand him clearly. So I think he takes a little bit, a little bit of moisture so that he can make this final proclamation. Because what he says next, um, for a man who's been hanging on a cross for six hours, he's going to be saying a lot. So verse 49, the rest said, let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. So you can see how the imagination of the crowd is running away with them quickly. Hey, this is going to be one of those, if you know your Bible, 2 Kings chapter 2 moments. Do you remember what happened there? That's when Elijah was taken away from Elisha, right? The chariots of Israel came and, and snatched him up. So they're probably, they probably have that working in their imagination. Let's see if these chariots of Israel will come down, you know, the, uh, these fiery chariots and and uh, rescue Jesus from the cross. Verse 50, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. So as I've taught you in discipleship, lesson one, technically speaking, 
the New Testament starts right there when Jesus dies. Now, it says when he had cried again with a loud voice. Matthew does not tell us what he said, but we do have these final words in two other places. So let me just quickly take you to these places. Uh, I believe that he said it in the order that I'm showing it to you, but I will admit that I cannot definitively prove this. He might have said it the other way around. Either way, both things were said. Luke 23, 46, when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Right. So I think that is the first thing that he cried out. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And then the second thing I think he cried was here in John 19, verse 30. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. So I, I think, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And then gra grabs another breath. It is finished. Now, maybe I think that it went in that order just for the sake of the, the dramatic, climactic, uh, the, the, the climax of it all, to say it is finished. One final statement. What a strong statement that is. But that is what he cried um, as he was dying. All right, back in... Sorry, let me get Matthew's gospel pulled up again. All right. So he yielded up the ghost. Verse 51, And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain, that's in two, from the top to the bottom. Now that is very significant, that it is pointed out from the top to the bottom. Guys, this veil of this temple, the curtain, is incredibly thick. All right, now just the, my four fingers here, the curtain was that thick, that thick. Think about that. You look at, the, I have curtains, sorry, you don't know that, but they're over here next to me. Any set of curtains, you, they're not even as thick as one of my fingers, right? But the veil of the temple, it, about four fingers is what I've, uh, from all of my studying and reading, that's how thick that thing was. This is not something, even if you get scissors or, or a, maybe a chainsaw, right? I mean, it's going to be tough to cut through this. Not only is it ripped in two, not from the bottom to the top, from the top to the bottom, which shows there's, there's only one person that could have done this. God ripped this thing open. Now, why would he do that? In the Old Testament, if the common man were to look into the holiest of holies, that is the most holy place, where the Ark of the Covenant was, was kept. That's where God would manifest his presence, right? On top of the Ark of the Covenant, what they called the mercy seat, which was just the lid of the, of the Ark. God would manifest his presence on the mercy seat from time to time. Uh, there would actually be a fire burning there, and that was God's manifested presence. So you read in Deuteronomy, our God is a consuming fire. That's why you read that. The Jews, they were told, it was commanded that if you saw this, you would die. The high priest, once a year, would go into this holiest of, of holies. And he'd have to have the right sacrifice. He would have to be ritually cleansed. I mean, it was a very special thing. It was the Day of Atonement. And this is why the high priest had to have bells on his garment. Because as he went into the holiest of all, if the bells quit ringing, they knew that the high priest had fallen over dead because he wasn't 
properly prepared to be in the presence of God, which is also why you don't read this in the Old Testament, but but in the Jewish traditions you read, they would tie a rope around the high priest's ankle so that if he fell over dead and the bells quit ringing, they could drag him out because no one could go into that place. It was too holy. The presence of God would is too much for, for the natural man. For God to rip this open now, what he's saying is my presence is no longer in this place. Anybody can look in and nothing's going to happen to them. So this is a fulfillment of what Jesus said. I pointed this out when we covered it at the end of Matthew 23. Jesus warned them. He said, behold, your house is left unto you desolate. So it's empty. And this is evidence of it. Rent from the top to the bottom. Incredible. Uh, In verse 51 at the end, and the earth did quake and the rocks rent. All right, so the rocks are breaking open. And, and an earthquake happens. Now, there's an earthquake that, that took place when Jesus died. This is the earth mourning. Its creator just died. A tremendous thought. And this is the earth showing its grief and trembling, right, at the, at the thought of the creator giving up his life. And I think what happens, the earthquakes, the rocks break open, they're rent, and then verse 52, and the graves were opened. So I think those three things happened quite possibly, they happen at the same time, right? Because the graves being opened, that would be explained by the earth, if the earth is quaking, the ground, right, where people are buried, it would open up, or a tomb, if somebody is sealed in a tomb, the rocks are broken in pieces, So tombs and graves are opened up. Uh, What happens in the rest of verse 52, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection. So there's a bit of a time jump, which you know that Matthew does this, right? He's, He's not so much worried about chronology as he is the details, but he does help us a little with the chronology in this one. So when Jesus dies, earthquake, graves open. Before anybody has time to repair the graves or the tombs, after the third day, right, Jesus rises again. These bodies also, many of the saints which slept, arose. And it says in verse 53, they went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Now, for a lot of people, this story is just so strange that they don't even believe it. Some people, some very... uh, well-known Christians, especially there's some well-known Christian apologists uh, that they do not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. And they say that if you find a story like this that is just too incredible, then it's probably not true. They say that Matthew most likely did write this, but Matthew, when he's reporting this, he's reporting this mistakenly. This was just a tradition that Matthew included in his gospel is just something that Matthew heard, and he probably shouldn't have repeated this story. They say that there's no verification for it. And All right, if you just want to look at biblical manuscripts, there's no reason to think that some later scribe introduced this story later on in, in history. It does appear that it, it was part of the original manuscript tradition. But what about the story itself? Is it so incredible and difficult to believe well, we know that throughout Jesus' ministry, he raised many people from the dead. All right, so that miracle is not beyond him. 
bear in mind that Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So wherever you find Jesus, interestingly enough, you, you find life. You don't find death. Look at every time Jesus visited a funeral throughout his three and a half years of ministry. Every time he comes near a corpse, that dead person rises. The widow of Nain's son, the young girl that says Talitha Kumi, uh, Lazarus. Anytime there's a funeral going on, you don't want Jesus coming near. He's going to wreck that funeral. He's going to raise that dead person. What I think happens is that after Jesus is now been in the grave three days, he, his soul has passed through hell, all of that's taken place. He's coming up. The people in the graves can't help it. They, they come up with him. Now, some people get a little carried away with this, I think. They say this is like a zombie apocalypse, right? There's just dead people walking the streets, you know. The, that, that is not what's going on. Uh, to paint a picture like that, obviously, Matthew doesn't. There's nothing about this story that would suggest it's a zombie apocalypse. That's somebody who's just cynical about it, trying to make fun or, or mock the, the Bible. Other people, when they approach this, they say this is when the Old Testament saints, all of them were... Uh, taken captive by Jesus, and uh, he led captivity captive, and he takes them all up to heaven. I, I don't think that's what's happening here. Um, Jesus leading captivity captive—that has to deal with the—that has to do with the souls of Old Testament saints, not their bodies. So this this is something I think uh, quite different. I think what happens here: the bodies of the saints which slept arose. These are people that were followers of Christ during his ministry, but they had passed away before Christ died, right? So Jesus is ministering for three and a half years. So let's say somebody becomes one of his followers after one year of his ministry. And then after another year, they pass on. Jesus is still preaching. This person is dead, buried, and their body is in the grave. And now Jesus gets to the cross, that grave opens up, and this person who was a follower of Christ that person rises from the dead. And however many they were, it says many, right? But that when you have the word many, the context will always tell us many, does that mean it's, it's five or 500 or 5,000? And in this context, we, we don't know how many qualifies as many. So I would say, if you, if you try to think about how many followers Jesus had, and how many of them passed away in that small window of him preaching? I, I don't think we're talking hundreds, maybe dozens, I think would be a reasonable estimation here. I think that these people, they've been dead a year or two, they come out of their graves, and they go back into Jerusalem. They go into the holy city, and they appear unto many. So there are many people that could verify that this happened. You say, well, what, what happened to these people that rose from the dead? What happened later? Um, I think they lived out the rest of their lives. Just like the widow of Nain's son, just like the 12-year-old girl that was raised from the dead, just like Lazarus, they died. So several days later, Jesus raises them from the dead. They live out the rest of their natural lives with that mortal body and die again. And they are buried again. And they're waiting for another resurrection. So I, I think that there's actually a very straightforward, practical approach to this passage. I don't think it's that far-fetched. Uh, I do think it's, it's an amazing story. And if you're one of the Jews in Jerusalem, 
And uh, you see this person that maybe you were at the funeral or you read their obituary, you know they died, and now they've come back. Wow, tell us about it. But, but again, Jesus had raised several other people from the dead. So it's not as if this is an anomaly to his ministry. This is something that he did. It just shows us that he has power that reaches beyond his mortal life. After Jesus dies, he's even then still working and able to do these amazing things. All right. Let me know if there's any other thoughts or questions on that because uh, this, that, that passage does tend to raise a few question marks. Verse 54 says, Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. Now think about the, the scenery. You have Jesus going to the cross 9 a.m., 12 noon, the sun should be shining brightly in the sky, but instead it went dark. Now, how did it go dark? Did God just turn the lights off? Did he bring a cloud? I don't know. It just says darkness, okay? So let's, I'm not going to try to take guesses at that. But that's not normal for there to be darkness in that part of the world at 12 noon. That's not normal. And then at 3 p.m., Jesus dies, and immediately when he takes his last breath, the earth begins to shake and the rocks begin to break open and graves start to open up. That's going to get people's attention. So much so that the, the centurion, the one in charge of what's going on, he sees this happen. He says, this, this guy was not a typical criminal. He is who he claimed to be. Truly, this was the Son of God. In Luke's gospel, you, it's recorded that he said this was a righteous man. And people sometimes say, well, which one is it? What did he say? He probably, probably said both. This was a righteous man. Truly, he was the Son of God. I could see the centurion saying both things. Verse 55, And many women were there beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him. And if you want to know what type of stuff they did, in Luke chapter 8, there's a brief description. gives us a small list of names. Uh, and they would cook and clean and do those kind of things, just helping Jesus, right? I mean, somebody needed to do his laundry, cook his meals. Jesus needed that sort of help, and these ladies provided that help. Um, in verse 56, among which was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's children, which uh, memory serves her name was Salome. Now, why does Matthew take time to give us these names? Well, if you're a Jew in the first century, and you want to know more about the story of Jesus. You know, there are Jesus followers going around everywhere witnessing about his resurrection. Let me, tell me more about it. Give me a tract. Let me read through it. Let me read up on it. Matthew writes his gospel to verify the life, the ministry, the teachings, the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. So he's leaving behind a trail of witnesses. He says, if you want to verify these stories, here are the people you can go talk to. Go talk to these people. Now, the fact that he mentions women, this is quite unique for this time period. In most ancient documents, they would never mention a woman as a reliable source, as a witness of any event. Now, if you can, just if you can see past 
the sexism that's involved in this, the fact that the ancient world looked down on the testimony of a woman, I don't agree with that, that view, but this is what we call, um, oh, forgive me, the, the proper term is slipping my mind. It's an apologetic, it's an apologetic approach where you use embarrassment. This, uh, oh, the proper term just ran through my mind again and it left me. But uh, it has something to do with a term about embarrassment. Why would Matthew refer to these women as proper witnesses? When in the ancient world, if you wanted to have strong support for a case, you would say that this man said it and this guy saw it. You would always refer to men. The fact that Matthew refers to women it shows that he's being genuine about the story. If he were making this up, then he most likely would have chosen various high-ranking men in society. Go talk to one of them, such, such and such an official, and this guy saw it. You can tell by the way Matthew is reporting the story. The centurion acknowledged it, right? There's a man. Joseph of Arimathea, we're going to read about another man, but he also acknowledges that there were many women there. So this, the fact that he's offering what might be considered an embarrassing piece of information, it shows how genuine this report is. All right, now verse number 57. When the even was come. Now remember, in the Jewish mind, that's 6 p.m. 6 p.m. There came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple, now, one of the other Gospels, it will explain that he was secretly a disciple because he was afraid of the Jews. Um, but as far as a businessman goes, he was a counselor. He had a high-ranking position. He was an honest guy. He was honorable. But when it comes to following Jesus, um, yeah, he wasn't an outspoken disciple until this point. Verse 58, he went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. Uh, now, again, if you put the Gospels side by side, you'll get a fuller account, especially you add John's Gospel into this. You find that uh, you have the account where the, the soldier, when Pilate heard that Jesus was dead so soon, because it wasn't typical for a, a, a crucifixion to be over so soon. Uh, Pilate wanted to know, is he really dead? Then they went and put the spear in his side and the blood and water came out. You might remember they broke the legs of the other uh, thieves next to him so that they would die more quickly. Uh, and it, it's also in John's gospel, you find that Joseph wasn't alone. He had help. Joseph went to Pilate, it appears, alone. But once he got permission, Nicodemus, the same Nicodemus that went to Jesus by night in John 3, that Nicodemus helps Joseph with the burial and getting the body prepared. Uh, verse 59, when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. Now, some of you, maybe you've heard of the Shroud of Turin. There is a Roman Catholic tradition that they have recovered the burial shroud, the burial garment. And the way they tell the story is that if, if you have the shroud, you just lay the, the fabric down, the, the corpse lays on part of the fabric, and then you fold, you fold the other end of the fabric over him. And what they say is that when Jesus rose from the dead, he must have had light coming through his body, and it put a, an imprint, 
an image of Jesus on the shroud. So to this day, if you look at the sh- what they call the Shroud of Turin, you can see what you know the appearance of a man. And from this, a lot of people have said this is where you get the general idea for the appearance of Jesus. Now, me personally, I've looked into um, the Shroud of Turin. I don't. Th- I, I highly doubt that it's genuine. Whenever they would wrap a body, right, folding a cloth over, I don't think qualifies as wrapping. Think of a mummy. Right, to a certain extent here. I don't think he's completely mummified, don't get me wrong, but wrapping, you, you would, with a mummy, you wrap each leg individually and each arm individually, that's different. But you have the whole body compacted and then you, you wind the cloth around him. I think that's what's taking place here. Uh, verse number 60. Now, by the way, if I can just point this out, it was verse 57 that... Uh, it says Joseph was a rich man. I'm putting into the comment section now. That was a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 9. It uh, reported that Jesus would be associated with the, with the rich in his death and, and in his burial. So that's, that was the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 9. All right, verse 60. And it says, And laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. Sepulcher is just another way of referring to a grave. Uh, so these, these burial plots were not cheap. This was a big deal. And for Joseph to give up his spot in this beautiful garden, it was a, you can see in John's gospel, it was, an, it was a, a garden and a new tomb that nobody had ever used. So this was a, a, great, a big sacrifice on Joseph's part to give Jesus this tomb. And then he seals it with a great stone. Why report that? Well, as we're going to see in chapter 28, there was a story circulated by the Jews saying that the disciples came by night and stole the body. Well, that's why Matthew is careful to give us the detail that there was a great stone rolled and put there. So to say that a bunch of women came and stole it or even some of the men came and stole it, that would be a great undertaking, especially in light of what we're about to read in the next few verses. But uh, Matthew's giving us all the details to show us just how secure the burial site was. Verse 61, and there was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. There were several Marys, by the way, that followed Jesus, so we're not sure which one that was. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting over against the sepulcher. So there's some of the followers of Jesus watching this plot, this area um, that can verify these events. All right, verse 62, it says, Now the next day that followed the day of the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate. All right, now it says, Now the next day. The day of the preparation, this was the Sabbath day, but that they were preparing for the Sabbath. Let me show you there. Whenever you have a feast going on, then you have a special Sabbath. There is the weekly Sabbath, every seventh day for a Jew, which we know is Saturday. That, that was a Sabbath day. But as you can see in John 19, 31, it says, The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation, that the bodies should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day. And then John's careful to add this information. For that Sabbath day was an high day. And high day, that is a holy day. It was, it was not just another regular day. It's an elevated day. This was the Passover. 
It was a special feast day in Israel. So the reason this is important, people say that Jesus died on a Friday because Saturday was the Sabbath. That's not true. That, that, that won't work because if he died on Friday, he's not in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, as we read in, in Matthew 12. Uh, so Jesus, if you put all the Gospels together, you see that he died on a Wednesday. And then he's in the ground Thursday, Friday, Saturday, three days, three nights. Sunday morning, early, he rises again. So, And that makes perfect sense if you allow for that special Sabbath day, which the Bible tells us that there was one. So when we're back in Matthew 27, 62, now the next day, so this is now Thursday, early Thursday, that followed the day of the preparation. The chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. So even at this point, the disciples of Jesus did not fully comprehend the resurrection, the idea of Jesus coming back to life. They didn't fully grasp that. Let me, I, I, I've referenced that many times, but uh, let me show you a verse about it. Uh, this is John's account of the resurrection, the John chapter 20. This is when Peter and, and John ran to the tomb to verify. Then uh, John 20 verse 8, Then went in also that other disciple which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed, that's John, for as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Do you see that? This is the morning of Jesus has already risen. Peter and John go to the tomb, and they're still blown away by this because they have not fully grasped the prophecy that Jesus gave about him rising from the dead. Now, the Pharisees, they were aware of it, and they were worried about it. So they, they said, we, we know that he said this, and in case he meant that literally, you, you need to take the Bible literally, in case he meant that literally, we need to do something about it. Verse 64, Command therefore that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead. So the last heir shall be worse than the first. So two mistakes. What's the first mistake? Man, we shouldn't have had him killed. Because if you think about everything that took place just with his, with his death and with his burial, all the prophecies that got fulfilled, right? His hands and his feet were pierced, his side was pierced. Uh, the people wagging their heads filled, uh, fulfilled Psalm 109. Buried in a rich man's tomb. The earth shaking, the rocks breaking. People saw that as verification that Jesus was the Son of God. I mean, they realized that their plan had backfired. But they said, man, if the body goes missing and people are going to start thinking that he rose from the dead, then it's really going to be difficult to explain away this Jesus guy. So they say, we've got to prove that he's still in the grave after three days. We've got to prove it, which we know how that story ends. But you can see why Matthew is so careful to tell us all these details because the body does go missing. And they do try to create this story that the disciples stole the body. But wow, how could the disciples break through the, the guard 
and roll the stone is just too much to believe. Verse 65, Pilate said unto them, ye have a watch. Now, it doesn't mean they have a watch like I wear on my wrist. You have a watch. You have a group of soldiers. You Now, notice he says, ye have. He doesn't say, I will give. Ye have. The Jews, and I, I think I mentioned this a few weeks, or a few lessons ago, but the Jews had their own band of soldiers. Those were the ones that were sent out by Caiaphas to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So I think Pilate is alluding to that. He's saying, you guys have a watch. You see to it. That's your business. We know how Pilate felt about crucifying Jesus. This is not He wasn't on board with it, even though he allowed it to happen. But he says, if you guys want to go stand guard at the tomb, help yourself. Make it as sure as you can. Which I wonder if Pilate meant that a little sarcastically. I wonder deep down. I wonder if he was saying, yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> Maybe not, but <laughs> certainly leaves that door open. Verse 66, so they went and made the sepulcher sure sealing the stone and setting a watch. So they set the soldiers uh, in their proper place. And forgive me, I'm just checking one thing before I say it. Uh, I'm trying to find, I think it's in Mark's gospel will tell us how many soldiers there were, but I'll, I'll, I'll check that in a moment. Um, but sealing the stone, let me show you, there's another reference somewhat like this in the book of Daniel. You'll remember Daniel when he was thrown into the den of lions. Nebuchadnezzar, um, is it Nebuchadnezzar in this story? No, no, it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar. Who was the king in this story? Is it Darius? Yeah, I'm sorry, Darius, forgive me. Um, so Darius, he knows that Daniel's a good guy. He's all for him, but uh, the other politicians are trying to overthrow Daniel. So verse 17, a stone was brought and laid upon the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that the purpose might not be changed concerning Daniel. So obviously, you know, Pilate and that's a different time frame, different group of people, but I think it's the same thing going on that the stone, the, the stone is sealed and it's by sealing it, you're putting an official stamp on it saying, you're not allowed to break this seal or open this tomb without official permission. So I, I think that's what we're, we're dealing with in, in Matthew. All right, now we're ready to start Matthew chapter 28, if my program will pull that up. Um, I, forgive me, I don't have an outline ready to show you. On Sunday, we are going to finish the book of Matthew. By the grace of God, I will have you an outline, have an outline for you on, on Sunday for that. But let's, we'll make a little bit of headway into this chapter now. Uh, chapter 28, verse 1. In the end of the Sabbath. Now, which Sabbath are we dealing with there? The other Sabbath that I just mentioned, the one that deals with the preparation. That's the preparation for the Passover, for that high day, that special Sabbath. This Sabbath, this is going to be early, what we would call Sunday morning, the first day of the week. So now the Sabbath that Matthew is dealing with here, this is the seventh day every, you know, the weekly Sabbath. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. Now, again, you put all the gospels side by side and you get a very full picture of what transpired on the, on the morning of the resurrection. 
I'm going to make a real quick uh, mention of if you want to find a list of all the, the chronology of what happened on the morning of the resurrection, let me, let me pull it up for you quickly. I have, let me show you here in the book. This, this book, you, you might have seen it before. How do I turn it there? These sayings are faithful and true. Sorry, I'm not very good at <laughs> trying to work with the camera on this. Um, but in answering one of uh, Shabir Ali's supposed contradictions, he, he finds a lot of flaws in the resurrection story. And he says there's contradictions. Uh, let's see. Ooh, can't do it there. Um, yeah, there we go. All right. Just going to find what question it is. Sorry, you can see it's on page 129 that it starts. But yeah, question number 86. Did anyone tell the women what happened to Jesus' body? So th this is where I, I lay out, I give a detailed explanation as to the chronology. So number one, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb. She's alone. And then I break it down, all the subpoints. So if you want a detailed look at the events of that surround the resurrection morning, please see this book starting at page 129 and I think there's like 14 things to the list with subpoints and everything. So it's quite an involved story. I'm not going to get into all the chronology of it here. We're just going to deal with what we have in, in Matthew's gospel, but just so you know where to find that imp <laughs> hit the wrong button. <laughs> just so that you know where to find that information if you're curious about it. All right, uh, verse number two. And behold, there was a great earthquake. So now this is a second earthquake. Right? There was an earthquake when Jesus died, and now there's another earthquake that happens um, when, I want to say when he rose again. But as you're going to see here, it looks as if he's already risen. And this earthquake is taking place as the stone is being rolled away. So you'll see here in verse 2, Behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came down, or, and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. Notice heaven doesn't care much about who sealed what stone with an official seal, right? Heaven's authority outranks, outdoes earth's authority. The angel rolls back the stone. Why? Not to allow Jesus to leave. He's already gone. As we know, Jesus can pass through a, a closed door with his resurrected body. So passing through the stone wasn't an issue. The angel rolls back the stone so that people can see the tomb is empty. It's to offer evidence that Jesus is no longer there. Verse 3, his countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. Um, sorry, give me one second to get this sorted. Yeah. Uh, now, as far as the appearance of angels go, angels can and do appear like men, but then they can also they can also have this uh, more heavenly or divine appearance, if if you want to call it that. It appears that they have some control over how they appear and how they're manifested to men. Even in this story, what you read here in Matthew, they this angel has a, a tremendous angelic appearance, this heavenly appearance. But then I think it's in Mark's gospel where you read that. Maybe in Luke, forgive me, but it just they it, it appears like these are two men, and that's it's perfectly reasonable to think that an angel, as he's coming down and moving the stone, that he has one appearance, and then he his appearance can change. I, I don't think that's 
that's completely. Uh, I, I don't think that's an outlandish story. I, I think that ma- that would be consistent with with how angels operate. Uh, I say that because when you read back in the Old Testament, it's, I'm thinking of uh, is it Judges chapter thirteen, I believe it is, where an angel appears to Manoah's wife and says that she's going to give birth to who we now know as Samson. This angel looked like a man, so much so that Manoah's wife went home and said. This man of God appeared to me and, and gave this and that prophecy. Manoah called, or he prayed and said, God, please send this man back. And, and the, the angel came. And they thought they were talking to a man. And then when they started a fire and gave an offering, the angel ascends in, in this fire, in the flame and in the smoke. Up, up he goes. Well, that tells me that there was some sort of a shift in, in his appearance, at least I would assume so. All right, so... Chapter 28, verse 4 here in Matthew. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. Scared them to pieces. Uh, so they, they fainted, I would assume. They just fell over. They, they weren't slain in the spirit, mind you, but they were afraid of what they were seeing. Now, when you, <laughs> given the fact that three days earlier, the, there was an earthquake and graves were opened, and everything that surrounded the story of Jesus, my goodness, for this to be happening now, whew, this event by itself would be terrifying. But when you couple it together with everything that happened surrounding the death of Christ, oh my goodness, even more so. Um, you're going to take this journey with me now. I'm going to just check in. I think it's in Mark's gospel here. Yeah, you can see in verse 5, they saw a young man sitting on the right side. This is The angel has now moved inside the tomb. Um, I am looking to see how many how many soldiers there were. I don't see it. You guys forgive me. I I thought I was going to be able to find that uh, that number quickly. Obviously, I'm not. But uh, it's not in Luke 23 because Jesus doesn't rise there. <laughs> ah, forgive me. I'm not going to be able to find that. I thought there was a verse explaining that. I must be thinking of another story with the amount of angels. No worries. Okay, on we go. Matthew 28 and verse 5. I, it seems as if there, it mentioned quaternion, but I might be confusing that with the story about Peter in the book of Acts. So either way, however many keepers there were, it's, a, it's of no consequence. There's obviously a, a multiple number of them. And verse 5, the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. Uh, Again, this lends itself to great preaching, right? Heaven's aware of the fact that you are seeking Jesus. Just remember that. Verse 6, he is not here, for he is risen. Isn't that how mankind is? We, We are told to seek the Lord. And yet we often seek him in the wrong places. You can see how we can get some practical learning from this. He is not here for he is risen. As he said, I like how the angel adds that, as he said, just reminding them. And this is my life verse is Luke chapter 23 and verse 8. It says, and they remembered his words. I, I That verse is always been special to me. But it it ties into this. It was right here that when the angel reminded them of this, that they remembered, oh yeah, 
Jesus did say he was going to rise from the dead. And this is the first time that it comes clear to the women what's going on. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. So come, take a look for yourself. The idea of blind faith, people say, you know, Christians just have blind faith. You just take take what somebody said and, and go with it. You don't verify anything. You don't believe in evidence. We believe strongly in evidence. When it comes to the resurrection, especially, there's lots and lots of evidence. And one of the strongest pieces of evidence for the resurrection is that the tomb is empty. They've never found the body of Jesus. Now, just think of this, guys. If you're a first century Jew and you can see that this group of Nazarenes, these followers of Jesus, that they're, they're, they're gaining momentum, they're becoming quite a movement. Thousands of them are, you know, uh, thousands of people are converting. How do you squash this movement? Well, beyond persecution and threats and stuff like that, all you need to do to disprove the Christian claim is produce the body. If you're a first century Jew, that especially in these first few months after the resurrection, all you gotta do, all you need to do is search around town and find the body. Why do you think the Jews had to come up with the story that somebody stole the body? Because they never could produce a body. So the fact that the tomb was empty, that needs to be explained. Why was the tomb empty? The enemies of Christianity, the enemies of Christ, would have been very keen to produce a body. Very keen. And if there was any body to be produced, we would have some record of it in some writing. In Roman history, in Jewish history, there would be some record of it. There's not one record of anybody finding any evidence of the body of Jesus being left behind. So the empty tomb speaks loudly to the evidence of his resurrection. And the angels are affirming that. Come see the place where the Lord lay. Past tense. He's not there now. Verse 7. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. Now that's important. You might remember this from chapter 26. Um, I'm just going to pull it back up for you to remind you. Chapter 26, verse 32. Jesus, he, told, he tells them, you're all going to be offended, but after I'm risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. And now the angels are reminding the, the ladies in this case, and the ladies are supposed to go tell the men about it, uh, that Jesus is going to meet you in Galilee. He says at the end of verse 7, There shall ye see him, lo, I have told you. Now, Jesus does eventually see the disciples in Galilee. We're going to come to that uh, probably Sunday. We'll, down in verse number 16, we'll see this more. But uh, the reason I'm pointing this out, you might remember on the morning of the, re- or the day of the resurrection, in that evening, Jesus meets the disciples, but he meets them in Jerusalem, which is down in the south where all of you know, the death, burial, and resurrection took place. The disciples were supposed to go up to Galilee, and Jesus was supposed to meet them there. They didn't make that trek. They stayed locked up in an upper room for fear of the Jews. And that is why in Mark's gospel, when Jesus enters into the upper room, he chews them out. In the King James Bible, it says he upbraids them. He chews them out for their unbelief. Because he told them what he would do and where they would meet him. And they, they did not take the necessary steps 
to see all this take place, or to, to have that meeting, I should say. All right, verse 8, And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy, that's the, the ladies now, and did run to bring his disciples' word. Amen. If you have experienced and seen the evidence of the resurrection, that puts a, a divine fire down in your soul to carry the message to somebody else and say, the master is risen. Verse, verse 9, And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. We would, this is, that was a common greeting in the day to just say, Hey there, hello. And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Now when you put this account next to John 20, Mary Magdalene was the first one to see Jesus after he rose from the dead. And Mary tried to hold him but, and tried to touch him, but he said, you don't touch me. I haven't been to the Father yet. And now we have Jesus coming and meeting these ladies and saying, all hail. And they held him, which tells us that Within the space of maybe an hour or two, you have Mary seeing the Lord, right, mistaking, mistakenly thinking he was the gardener, having the conversation with Jesus. Jesus went up to the third heaven, performed the necessary heavenly things, right? I, I would assume placing his blood on the mercy seat. I, I take that from Hebrews 9 and 10, but that's a, a, a longer story. And then comes back down and meets these ladies on, on their way to tell the disciples. And because he's already accomplished this trip up to the Father and back down, now uh, it's okay for the ladies to touch him. So that, that's the explanation for why Jesus disallows it in, in Mary's case and then allows it with the ladies is that he's already gone up and come down. Uh, in verse number 10, Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. So that was the plan. Tell them to get to, get to Galilee. Now the ladies did. They came and told the disciples, We've seen the Lord, and they didn't believe. That's why Jesus chose them out for their unbelief. Not only could they, they should have just believed what Jesus said, that I will rise from the dead, and you'll see me in Galilee. But now Jesus has sent these ladies. They have also verified the facts, and still they're not believing it. So we'll touch more on the whole trip up to Galilee and Jesus meeting them in Jerusalem. We'll touch on that next time. Okay, that's all I have for you tonight. I think this is a good stopping place. Uh, if you guys have any questions about any of this, feel free to slip it in real quick while I'm uh, praying. If you want to contact me personally, of course, anytime. And please, guys, any of you, if you were here for the beginning of the lesson, I offered, uh, if you want to have a, uh, I want to say private, but a special preacher's class, if you want to just get together and talk about preaching, how to put sermons together, how to deliver them, I'm, I'd be really excited to help you with that. So let me know if, if that would be of, of interest to anyone, and we'll, uh, we'll make a plan for that. All right, Father, thank you this evening for the privilege of taking a longer look at what your son did. Lord, how tremendous, how, how rooted in reality, how evidence-based, how breathtaking this story is. Lord, help us to get a hold of what happened. And just like those ladies ran to tell others, help us, Lord, also to carry the message of the death, burial, and resurrection to all these 
all these souls waiting in unbelief that they just need to hear. They need to hear the story. I pray that you please um, let these seeds fall into good ground as we go through the rest of our week. Let it, let it grow within us. And I pray that you'd bring us back ready to learn more this coming Sunday. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. I don't see any questions. So I appreciate you guys being with us for tonight's class. Lord willing, I'll see you again soon.